0: Welcome to the Compounders Podcast. On this show, we explore the topic of compounding from various angles, including through interviews with public and private company executives, investors who focus on compounders, and newer investment firms that are building a business they hope will become more valuable over time. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of SNN or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The host and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. My guest on the show today is Jim Falvey, Managing Principal of Saguaro Capital Management. After spending almost eight years at Vulcan Value Partners, in 2021, Jim left to start Saguaro. The most unique thing about Saguaro's strategy is that it employs an internally built AI system that helps with screening for stocks as well as with investment decision-making. In this in-depth interview, we covered how Jim's experiences at Vulcan have shaped his approach to starting Saguaro, what the term AI actually means to Jim and Saguaro, how the team members use AI now and how they hope to use it in the future, why a SMIDCAP strategy was compelling enough to launch with, and why he prefers to invest with companies growing inside of their moats. And without any further ado, here's my conversation with Jim Falby of Saguaro Capital Management. Jim, in your interview on capital allocators, which I highly recommend, you told the founding story of Saguaro. What I'm interested in is what pushed you over the edge to leave a great seat at Vulcan to do something very entrepreneurial.
1: Well, that's an interesting question and one that I might flip on its head a little bit. I I have a lot of people that are like, why did you leave? And I think the more appropriate question might be why I stayed as long as I did. And what I mean by that is most people who are truly world-class who go into the investment management space, whether they want to be an analyst or whatever their long-term goal is, they still have that that seed in their mind of one day, I want to be a PM. One day, I want to be making the risk-based decisions one day I want to be running my own my own firm on my own fund. Um, and actually, when I was out interviewing for jobs after I had my MBA at Notre Dame while I was still at Notre Dame, I'd go up to New York on Thursday evenings and would spend Fridays interviewing in New York. And one really well-known, very well-respected, long-only equity manager had me in, super excited to be there. And during the interview process, they asked me, they're like, hey, where do you want to be in five or 10 years? And you know, I answered honestly and said, well, I probably want to be in your seat. I'd love to be a PM or I'd love to be running my own firm. And the guy just stopped. He's like, banged on the table. That's the wrong answer. Wrong answer. No. He's like, you want to be an analyst. And he's like, you don't just want to be an analyst. You want to be the world's best analyst. Everything for you is about improving your craft. It's not about being a PM. You want to be the best analyst you can possibly be. And I'm like, you know, blown away. And he's like, interview's over. And then they send me off and I'm like, oh my gosh, I just like, Totally failed, you know. But walked down the road, had another interview later that day, and thankfully enough, they asked me the exact same question. They're like, "Hey, where do you want to be in five or ten years?" And I was like, "I want to be the world's best analyst. I want to get better at my craft and do it, you know, at a level no one else in history has ever done it." And they loved it. They like totally ate it up and up offering me a job. And I was like, "Okay, that's that's really interesting, um, the way the industry works." But I think the truth is, most people who are world class. They ultimately want to be in the PM or the fund manager seat. And one of the, the best compliments I ever got from a former partner at, at Vulcan who actually joined us at Sorrow, he's like, look, on day one, when you came to Vulcan, I knew you were already headed out the door. And not that I thought you were going to leave quickly, but I just saw that in you, you wanted to build something. And I think there's a lot of people who in the industry, they feel that way. And you know, here, we really want to acknowledge that and try to create a system where we can bring in world-class talent, apprentice them, and then one day, hopefully, spin them out to do their own thing, knowing that that's their long-term goal and that's not being a trader or doing something wrong. Um, yeah, but I think in, in my specific circumstance, you know, why did I stay at Vulcan as long as I did? And the answer is because Vulcan is an amazing place, just truly great people that I, I had the opportunity to work with. I loved our values. I loved the way that we treated our clients. And I was, I was very bought in. CT gave me a lot of authority and decision-making opportunity day one. And then ultimately that grew over time, being able to build out something on the AI side, the data science side, which you know finally flowered to the point where, and I think I've shared this before, but you know, we had this really robust business at Vulcan. And it's like, are we really going to risk upsetting that? Are we going to push over this kind of $20 billion Apple cart to chase some shiny new object that may or may not add value? And uh, really, that's what ultimately led to the creation of Saguaro. It's saying, hey, we've got this great opportunity, but with the innovator's dilemma, we don't want to pursue it here. We need to pursue it someplace new. So happy to dig into that more. But um, yeah, (laughs) I stayed because it was a wonderful place and and ultimately had to leave because we had an opportunity that we thought uh, was rife. We wanted to be modern value investors and try to combine the best in modern technology with this this classic investment discipline.
0: I'll just make one comment about what you said about the analyst versus PM. I just, I think the best analysts want to be PMs and your PM, the PM should want that person to have that authority and autonomy. And because if you don't, I just don't think you're going to be incredible at your craft if you don't want to make decisions at some point. So
1: I totally agree. Um, I totally agree, but <laughs> I was just taking the feedback I was given and, and trying to go with it.
0: When you think about the strategies that you've launched, maybe to talk a little bit about how that experience of, of, of maybe getting a little too big in small cap and being too big uh, in specific companies, how's that imp- influenced your sense of the total capacity for the strategies at Swirl?
1: Well, our team is unique and we really, our target, we'd love to be in kind of that $650 million to billion dollar range. Um, we believe that would be enough AUM for us to pursue everything we want to pursue at a world-class level. Um, you know, underneath that, we still think we're going to be some of the best of the best, but there are some resources that they just require money. And so it's it's helpful to be at that scale. I think beyond that, um, there may be some incremental add, but eventually I, I do think you really run up against performance constraints due to capacity. And so we've tried to align our incentives to encourage us to both get in the sweet spot and then sustain ourselves in the sweet spot uh, for clients over the long run. And so what we do is one, our management fees actually decline over time as our AUM scales. So if we get to certain levels of AUM, the management fee drops and our revenue will become more dependent upon performance fees, which we really think aligns us for the long term. So we are not incentivized to just get out there and try to manage AUM, grow AUM and and keep AUM, but actually focus on performing for the clients that we have. Two, we have written into our legal documents fairly strict capacity constraints. And so in our SMID cap, we cut that off at a $20 billion market cap. So really, I mean, those meds are in there, but we're saying it's 1.5 billion. And we believe 1.5 billion with a 20 billion top end is is very doable. Um, In our large cap strategy, which is 20 billion and above, we've capped at at 5 billion. And I don't know if we'll ever be successful enough or fortunate enough to get there. We believe we can. Uh, We believe we've built the infrastructure to manage $10 billion today at the firm. So we think of it in terms of, well, we'd love to build a bridge that can bear twice the load uh, that's ever going to go over it. And so we kind of got this $10 billion infrastructure. We kind of hope to you know be that billion dollar fund. We think we could scale to, to five um, with our constraints, but really not much bigger than that. And then all cap, it's actually a 3C1 fund. So it's limited to a hundred seats. So while right. the strategy could do 3.5 and maybe we have an SMA or something outside, which we count towards that 3.5. I think the likelihood of hitting that is lower just because the number of seats is is lower. And that's where a lot of our friends and family and internal employees have invested money. And so we've already got a lot of those seats used up internally. So we'll see. Um, But we think we're properly structured for where we want to be and what we want to achieve.
0: I love that alignment, especially when it comes to the uh, management fees declining as AUM rises. One thing that I found in my experience uh, working at a long only fund uh, is that uh, allocators in the long only space versus the 220 space weren't really as comfortable with performance fees and dealing with performance fees. How have you found receptivity? I mean, alignment's great, but how have you found the receptivity within, you know, the traditional long only allocator community to embracing performance fees?
1: Um, well, it's it's multifaceted. So, one, we are entrepreneurial. We, are, you know, our structure is we're funds. So, we're a hedge fund structure, GPLP structure, master feeder in both our smid and our large cap product. Um, So we can have side letters. And what we've communicated is we're happy. If you want just a straight management fee, we will do that. We don't believe it's the best possible alignment. Um, Obviously that would be for a client who's larger and has a little more heft because you've got to produce some specific documents for that. We'd also be happy doing uh, an arrangement, which was performance only. Um, our suggestion though, is somewhere in the middle where again, we have this declining management fee and performance fee. it's it's very structured. we We have it out there. We've got a couple different buckets. We've got like an anchor share class, which would be the first five percent of AUM, which would get us to break even. Uh, then we have a founder share class, which kind of gets us to that 650 million. That's that next leg to where we have all the resources we want. Then we have standard shares where if someone's still interested in doing business with us, once we're kind of at the level we want to be, uh, the fee is a little bit higher. But um, again, that's the proper alignment to try to say, hey, listen, we want to get great partners in early who are committed for the long run. And we want to give them something of value for taking that, that risk on us a little bit earlier. Yeah. Um, I haven't had as much pushback on on the fee structure. I think one everybody realizes that in the institutional space it's always a conversation and there's always specifics uh, for each potential client. But um, we do have an options overlay to our strategy. We are capable of having small amounts of leverage um, to help us execute that option strategy. So it's a little bit different. We believe, given our concentration, our ultra long term time horizon, and those other features, that uh, a performance fee does make sense, especially given the structure. And so we. I think people have been very intrigued by the fee structure. It hasn't been something where people are like, oh, no, you should just charge a straight um, straight management fee.
0: Yeah, that's great to hear. So let's dig into the concept of differentiation. And so what I think is different about Saguaro versus just about every other value investor is the use of technology, particularly AI. That acronym, along with the concept of machine learning, gets thrown around a lot. From a practical standpoint, what is integrating AI actually mean to you and to Saguaro?
1: Uh, well, first and foremost, I think this this question probably takes longer than five minutes uh, to really answer in a thorough way. Uh, and I'll tell anyone who's interested for more. We published a primer last quarter where we took everything we've learned over the last 10 years and we tried to put it together in that primer in a way that is approachable for anyone, even if you don't have experience in data science. So we talk about our journey from absolute zero to where we are today. We talk about all of the resources that we've used. We talk about, here are the basic tools that you need. Here's where we think things are going over the next 10 years. Here's how you can tell the difference between real AI and something that's just marketing spin. Um, So we think it's incredibly useful. I encourage you to go check it out. Our website is uh, saguarocm.com. It's there. Um, So if you want more, I think... That's there. There's a lot of other resources out there which are, are mentioned in a primer. Um, but here's what I would say: I think anything you do at a significant level, you you kind of need a philosophical underpinning for it. And one of the resources for us on the philosophical level is a guy named Kevin Kelly, who he's a technologist based in Silicon Valley. He's he's older at this point, but really a techno optimist. He's written several books, done TED talks. He has a wonderful newsletter that he puts out where he's always trying to stay on the very edge of how technology is benefiting humanity. And he really believes technology is going to change our lives for the better. And so um, he wrote a book about a decade ago, which I would recommend anyone who hasn't read this book. It's amazing. It's called What Technology Wants. And it's based around this central idea that he calls the technium and uh for those who who haven't heard of the technium uh, again like most people in silicon valley when they have a big idea they try to make it as big as possible and for him he defines the technium as this idea that that technology may actually be the seventh kingdom of nature so you've got the plant kingdom the animal kingdom the fungi kingdom and you know go on you've got the technology kingdom and while he acknowledges that technology is almost it's it's a part of humanity. So for instance, you know, beavers build dams, uh, ants build nests, um, wasps build these, you know, wonderful hives, et cetera. They, technology is kind of like humanity. Like we build these tools, et cetera. But he said that technology has evolved to a point where it's, it's taken on a life of its own. So if you look at technological development over the last 200 years, it's almost like, humanity knows what the next step in technology needs to be, or technology is driving its own evolution. And and what I mean by that is, you know, it wasn't just Thomas Edison trying to develop the light bulb. There were actually five or six people trying to develop it at the same time. He just won the race or Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone, but he did it kind of at the same time as as other people. And so it's this real interesting thing where you always have multiple teams, multiple places around the the, the globe working on that next step in technology. And so one technology is not going to stop its own evolution. I mean, barring of course some kind of catastrophe asteroid slamming of the planet or world war three or something like that but it's just going to keep pushing and number two is this idea that and everyone is aware of this technology is on an exponential growth curve so it's not linear and the mistake that a lot of humans make is we think okay well i've been alive for 30 years here's how technology has developed since i was born until today and so i think technology is going to increase the same amount from the time i'm 30 to i'm 60 and that's incorrect technology is exponential and so the growth that you're going to get in the second half of your life the change that you're going to experience is much much bigger than the change you experienced when you were young and this is why a lot of people who are you know elderly they come back and they say man technology i just can't keep up with it and the reason is the rate of change is so much higher than it was in their formative years and so for us when we put those two things together we say listen technology is the primary thing that makes humanity different today from what it was 50 or 100 years ago and frankly we think that this acceleration in technology is going to continue. Truthfully, we believe that the change over the next 10 years in the finance industry specifically is going to be greater than the 100 years previous to it. And so for us, we want to be on that curve. I mean, we think of it almost like a wave that we're trying to catch if we're out surfing and we want to catch the wave. We do not want to be drowned by the wave. We want to ride it. And so that means we have got to be on the forefront. We need to be investigating it. We need to be building it. We need to say, hey, how can we use this for our process, so um, specifically to answer your question, the way we think AI is useful is not buying some product off the shelf. So everyone's going to have ChatGPT. Everyone's going to have Microsoft Copilot. You know, a few years ago, everybody had Google Search, and anything that's AI at scale, everyone's going to have. And so the question is, what makes you unique? You know, right? One investment firm having Excel does not make them better than some other firm that has Excel. Everybody has the same tool, but if Your firm is capable of generating excess returns. If your investment process and your investment philosophy leads to true alpha, then AI or data science can help you accelerate that. It can help you amplify that. If as a firm, you're not capable of generating excess return or alpha, I'm sorry, (laughs) AI isn't going to make you any better at what you do because you're not good at it. It's going to amplify what you already have. And I think where firms really need to look is number one, what is our secret sauce? What is our Promethean fire that enabled us to be successful, to raise $5, $10, 20000000000 billion? And can we categorize it? Can we say exactly, this is our process, this is our philosophy? Because if you can, then it's about gathering your own data, collecting it, and ultimately, you can use these models to amplify what you're doing. So at Vulcan, we were about finding quality businesses. At Saguaro, we're about finding even higher quality businesses. And in both cases, we've been able to use... Machine learning, we've been able to use data science to categorize our process step by step, identify what it is that we're looking for, and then set the machine free on the entire globe of companies, right? I would say that our human research team today is still much better than any AI model at picking a high quality business. But there is no analyst on earth, including Warren Buffett, who can look at more companies in a given year than the machine can, because the machine can look at all 60,000 in about two hours. And at the end of that two hours, it's like, here are the ones that I think are the very best. Here are the ones that aren't. And I'm not just looking at it from a quantitative standpoint. I'm actually reading all of the documents, summarizing them, going through them and looking for competitive advantages, et cetera. And so for us, it's been this huge accelerator in trying to find those next high quality businesses, especially in this mid cap space where it's like, okay, we not as aware. And I mean, we can talk about that a little bit later, but I think for any firm out there, if your secret sauce is you're looking for culture or you're good at looking for turnarounds, or you're looking for roll-ups, I think the same technology could be applied to your process if you have data uh, from a long enough period of time, and you're willing to change the way you operate to integrate these models. And so if you really want to add alpha or excess return using AI or data science, it's about building something proprietary based on top of what you already do. And if you do generate excess returns, guess what? AI can help you do it at an even higher level. If you don't, it's not gonna be a savior. It's actually gonna push you further behind other people who are, are good at what they do. So, um, you know, we're actually <laughs> talking with helping several people, you know, try to understand what they could do to to make themselves better and, and think that maybe partnering with some other people might be a way we can accelerate what we're doing too. So I'm um, very excited about that. And, you know, I think AI, it makes us better at our secret sauce and we're also looking for ways that it can make us better kind of around the edges. I have no idea what's going on there. That was weird. Um, There's also ways we think it can make us better kind of around the edges as far as executing our process. But yeah, that's a long answer. Sorry.
0: No, no, wonderful. Thank you for sharing all that and and the the background, the Kevin Kelly background is really interesting. Is the feedback mechanism of determining whether it's adding value and whether it's enhancing your secret sauce, is it the same kind of, I don't know, three to five years for to determine what, you know, whether or not you're any good at investing, right? Is that is it any different because of the AI? Would you like if you were if, if someone was sitting in the allocator seat and saying, Okay, let's, these guys have an interesting approach, they've got a good value philosophy, what, how long? You know, how long should we give it to figure out whether it's really working? Any? Is it any different than in a traditional investing situation where they're not using technology?
1: I think as far as trying to gauge our process, because again, like I said, AI is an amplifier. It's not necessarily something that's going to be a differentiator. So if you want to know our process, does it add alpha? Does it add access return? I think you're still going to have to evaluate kind of that three to five year time horizon. As far as is the AI working? That's something which you can simply see. So anyone who's come in and said, okay, well, we want to see the AI. We're like, all right, well, tell us what you're looking for. And then we have the AI produce what they're looking for. And frankly, people go from skeptical to, oh, wow, this is amazing. How can I use this for, for my process? I had several allocators saying, hey, could we use this for manager selection? And uh, the answer usually is, well, we don't have a standardized of data. This is much better in the public markets because everything is standardized versus private. You could do it in the private markets. You could probably do it in the manager selection area, but it would take a very long time Um you know, creating the database, so to speak. So for us, when we did this at Vulcan, the first three years were really about standardizing the data, getting it ready. And uh, the same thing here. I mean, while we're able to do it faster today, because most of the data providers like CapIQ or FactSet, et cetera, all have APIs and everything is a lot more standardized. You still have to clean it, it takes time. But, you know, if you're operating in a private space, we're going to have to web scrape all the data. That's going to take a long time to do. Um, And then standardizing it is going to be a huge pain. It, It would be possible, but it'd be very expensive. So, but again, anybody who sees the output you can, you can tell quality. So our research team knows that it's working because we know what we're looking for. And when the machine suggests, you know, 50 companies we've never heard of before that when we look at them closely possess all of the attributes that we want, that is incredibly valuable for us. And so, you know, our guys describe it like Christmas, when a new list comes out, they're like, Oh my gosh, I want to see that one. i want to see that one. And they're just these really interesting names. So.
0: And you, so you've, talked about investor education you put out that primer you can you can show someone the the output which i guess is is pretty um compelling what else about the investor education process it has been part of the um part of your approach when people are sitting sitting next to you and being like well why?" why is this different? Why do we want to do this? You know, why is this better than what you had, you know, than just a bunch of analysts doing the same thing?
1: I think the conversation is very different today uh, versus November of last year. So prior to the chat GPT kind of hitting the mainstream, um, you know, there were a select few who were very interested in what we were doing because they kind of understood the models. And, um, you know, some people have wanted to dive into the code. Some people have just wanted to see the inputs or the outputs. Um, but you know, since ChatGPT came out, everyone's like, "Oh my gosh, this is the future! It has to be part of what investment firms are going to do." And I mean, I'm talking to everybody from very small allocators up to Goldman Sachs. We've had conversations with just saying, "Hey, how are you using it, and how is it going to impact long-term investing?" Because you've got that whole crew that have been doing trading, and you know, obviously anything that's high frequency, very very rapid, et cetera, it's it, that's prime for machine learning models. But how do you do it in in kind of this long-term? bottoms up fundamental way. And that's, that's a question people are trying to answer right now. Um, but no, the, the education process used to be much more, if people were interested, we talk about it. If not, we would really just focus on kind of that classic investment discipline that we have. Whereas today it is, you know, people have gotten up to speed. You know, I think now people want to ask us, well, what kind of models do you use? And they understand the difference between transformers and what came before, and they would know about XG Boost and random forest, etc. Whereas again, two years ago, that was not part of the conversation it was like okay you you talked to ibm about watson um how did that how did that go and and really if you you answer that next question they they just they kind of gloss over cuz they didn't have the the background but most of the allocators that we talk to are very intelligent i mean these are some of the the most astute institutions in the world and they've really gotten up to speed on ai over the last 2 years so it's it's wonderful to have those conversations at this point because we can clearly show the value we have created what we've done and and they understand why that's valuable and how it differentiates us from people who are just getting started today versus we've been doing it for a decade. And um, you know, just understanding how the database works, it takes a while to kind of get up that learning curve if you're starting from zero.
0: And I'm interested in your perception of the proper team size. Does having the technology working in the background reduce the number of people you ultimately need to run whatever, you said 10 billion, let's say you get there or, or even half of that. Is it is that the same team size you would need absent The technology or is it fewer?
1: Well, unfortunately, um, data scientists are not cheap. And so data scientists or research analysts, I would say are almost interchangeable on on cost structure. So I think ultimately there's going to be some scale advantages. And we do believe that it's while we may not be replacing people or headcount, ultimately productivity for the firm as a whole will be exponentially higher. So it's two plus two equals five or two plus two hopefully equals more like 10. Um, As opposed to, to four. So our research team, we think can be a little bit more compact. And we believe that the right size in a room debating ideas is probably about five. So if it's just one person, that may be ideal, but at the same time, it's really, it's really tough to kind of get that feedback on, is this correct? Is it not correct? You feel like with three, which is where we're at today, sometimes the discussion isn't as robust as we want it to be. So we think adding two more is probably good. We think an odd number is definitely a have to have versus we don't want ties where it's just like, okay, you know, you're kind of banging your heads against each other. But I can also say with confidence when I've been in rooms with many more people than five, Oftentimes people just talk because they feel like they need to talk to be seen, to be noticed, and the discussion doesn't necessarily improve. It doesn't go in, in good places. So we think you know, technology is wonderful because we believe we can have the productivity of a 10, 12-person team, but we can have the decision-making capacity of really that that five, which we kind of think is an ideal number. And so I would put our productivity today with just three people up against you know, a lot of truly great firms. I think the level we're able to get out, the the pace with which we're able to move through and find these truly wonderful businesses is incredible. Um, We're all very proud of what we've been able to do just in the first kind of year and a half of research productivity um, and and believe we can continue to scale that from here. So um, yeah, technology definitely helps. Unfortunately, on the cost side, not not as much. Mm.
0: And so there's one aspect of the AI which is covering a lot of ground and unearthing ideas that may not have fallen into your lap previously. And now I'm interested in the evolution of it and how decision making can evolve with the as the data set gets better, as the, the machine learning gets more sophisticated. So how do you think the AI will impact that, whether it's a three three or five member or team, how do you think it'll impact decision-making in a way that you're not necessarily utilizing it now, if at all, I guess?
1: Well, I think one of the things we've really begun to investigate more recently is the long tail of information on every single company. So human analysts just don't have the capacity. If you have a a business that's called 20, 30 years old, no human analyst can go back through and look at every document that's ever been produced by that that company. Machines can. And so if we have red flags, yellow flags, green flags, things that we know we're looking for either to the positive or to the negative, the machine can suss those out and say, hey, listen, while you don't have the time to review every single document, here are a couple of things you need to know about. Two, it can create histories or summaries of these companies over the very long run. So most analysts will tell you, if there is a book that's been written about a firm and you can really trace its evolution over time and understand the story, it really helps you understand why they're positioned the way that they are today. And by looking at their past development, it gives you maybe a better insight. I mean, you're still going to be wrong trying to predict the future, but it gives you better insight about where they might be able to go uh, going forward. And so for us, we can do that. Right now, we can take every document the company's ever produced and we can, number one, anytime, anything. So right now, anything that a company releases, we get a summarization of that one time per day. So anything on one of our kind of watch lists, which we call the SCM 100 list. Anytime there's a conference presentation, anytime they put out an earnings report, anything, you know, we're going to get a summarization on that exactly the way that we would want it. So here's the general numbers. Here's what's happening to their competitive advantages. Are they getting stronger or weaker? Here's, you know, things we should be aware of that um, all that stuff. And it comes in, it's really incredibly helpful. You know, we're watching every name on our list every day to understand where it is from a valuation perspective. All that stuff is automated. And I think if you're not doing that, that's, that's crazy to me. But it's the fact that we're now able to do kind of these deep dives on businesses where we can say we can go back to the beginning of time until now. And while the human hasn't read every single document, you can be darn certain that our institution has because the AI has gone through, it those documents, it's looking and we're crafting those stories. So that's something we're working on at present. And I I think we'll probably have something active there pretty quickly. I think, you know, the next iteration of Claude, the next iteration of ChatGPT, the token count is going to go up significantly. And that just means the size of document that you can feed into it will get bigger. And as that happens, it will be easier and easier to kind of produce these summaries. But um, it's something you need to know how to do and and craft. And we're very excited about using that to help improve our decision-making because we know we've at least explored all of the information. We may not have seen it with our own eyes, but it's not like it was completely um, left untouched. So that's helpful. I think two, you know, doing a pre-mortem, post-mortem, very helpful, pre-mortem, just idea generation, post-mortem, we record all of our research meetings. And obviously when we go back and we want to understand why we got something right or why we got something wrong, we have that raw data. But the other nice thing is, again, the machine can summarize, the machine can tell us who had what viewpoint, when, Mm -hmm. the date, um, kind of what their general arguments were, et cetera. And so it really helps us summarize all of this past data we've created internally um. very quickly. So just having that underlying data is what gives the edge. It's not necessarily the tools, but I can't tell you how many firms I've talked to and they don't capture their own data, which I really don't understand. If you want to improve at what you do, you've got to observe what you do. So you understand where you're weak, where you're strong, and and you can improve that decision-making. So for us, we believe that you know, having that real feedback where it's objective. Cause I mean, I'll tell you, there's been a couple of times where we've disagreed on something and, you know, something maybe didn't go exactly right. And one person will say, well, I was against that idea. I said, we should never do that. And we're like, okay, well, let's go back and watch the tape. And we go back and we watch the tape. And it's like, that person's like, this is the greatest idea we've ever had. We need to, to go big on it. And they're like, okay, okay. Well, I was wrong then and I'm right now, but at least um, they can't hide what they actually said. And so, um, you know, very, very thankful for technology.
0: Yeah, I love the recording decisions. It's one of, you know, one of the things that my prior firm that I was my favorite in terms of that, you know, that hindsight bias not creeping into the, the future decision making. So let's dig in a little bit to the strategies. So you decided to have three strategies when you launched as opposed to focusing on one and getting it right kind of immediately out of the gate. What what was the rationale there for starting with
1: three? Well, one, we really view it as one strategy, one philosophy, one process, one team. So it's not that differentiated. I mean, it's 20 billion and below is in SMIT cap, 20 billion and above is large cap. And then all cap is the best of both worlds, but um, it's really just not that differentiated. So even if we hadn't launched our large cap strategy, we're still looking at all the same large cap names for all cap. And, you know, even if we hadn't launched mid cap, we're still looking at all the large caps and all the mid caps for all cap. So uh, we don't really view it as a huge extra lift and our portfolios are ultra low turnover. So we're tracking well below 20% at this point. We don't do a lot besides writing options um, in the actual portfolios. I mean, we're trying to find the best businesses on earth. We then wait for that once in a decade type opportunity when they really get discounted to add them. And then when we want to hold them as long as possible and allow them to compound and do their thing. And so it really gives us the time and the flexibility to get out there and look for those incremental ideas to learn, to get up to speed on industries and to follow development changes, etc. So, um, you know, we didn't really view it as hugely negative from a workload perspective. I think when I was starting out, I, I really wanted to just, I'm just, just all cap. That's all I wanted to do. One fun, be, be focused, but, um, you know as we're going to market you you have your ideal of what you would do if you're managing mm-hmm. money by yourself in a room and then you also have what is the market asking for and Vulcan's small cap strategy had been closed for more than 5 years at that point and there were a lot of people saying hey listen you're the first breakaway from Vulcan we would love to have access to smid cap small cap type manager and so the decision was well we have a lot of people who seem very interested today and this is this is fall of 21 and so we're like okay well we'll go ahead and we'll, we'll probably do that and then fast forward to you know 22 and the world has changed. Interest rates are going up. Everyone's allocating to fixed income. And, um, you know, unfortunately there were some other headwinds as well, but, you know, public equities are not super popular in 22. They weren't super popular at the beginning part of this year. I think there's some small green shoots we've seen in Q4 of this year. So hopefully that will continue. But um, yeah, the, the other thing was, we always thought maybe we'll do a large cap strategy one day if SMID cap and all cap are over full. If people want to continue to allocate to us, we could have it. And then in Q2 of, 22. Again, it was just this massacre of truly high quality businesses that were large. Uh, we thought this was almost a generational type thing. We would huge discounts in, in the big ones like Amazon or Google or Microsoft. And I mean, if you look at them, they're all up like 60, 70% this year. I mean, that's, that's an incredible run. We went ahead and rolled forward large cap just because we said, if we're ever going to start a track record, we believe for our strategy, now is the time to do it.
0: And so your strategies are quite concentrated in the seven to 15 stock range. As the AI gets better and you have more data and you can establish even more conviction, would you expect to become more concentrated over time because you because of that conviction or not necessarily?
1: Um, I think we're going to get more concentrated over time, but not because we have higher conviction in any one idea. It's just as our SCM 100 lists get fully built out. So at this point, they don't quite have 100 names on them, uh, but once they do... We believe we'll have more opportunities at any given time where a company is kind of trading at or below our low end of estimated value. So one of the requirements for us to buy something is not just that it's a high, super high quality business. It also has to be at that kind of generational type discount. And so we don't think in terms of point estimates of value. We like to think in terms of valuation ranges, and we really want to only purchase something when it gets to the low end of that range. So for example, I I don't know exactly what Amazon is worth but I'm very confident Amazon is worth more than X and it's worth less than Y. And so if I can wait to buy Amazon when it's kind of below X or at X, we feel very comfortable that over the long run, it's going to do incredibly well. And so the more names we've identified that are high enough quality for our process, the, the more opportunity we likely have to make those purchases when they're selling at a discount. If you have a hundred and you know typically these things only get discounted once every 10 years, then hopefully you know five or 10 of those names might be discounted at any given time. Hopefully a lot of them are in our portfolio, but there's an incremental one or two every year that we could be investing in if we have new flows or we have the opportunity to kind of reallocate in the portfolios. So I think as that gets bigger, we'll get a little more concentrated because we can take bigger positions in those names that are discounted. You know, Today, if we have inflows, we still want to allocate. And so if something is kind of below where we think the middle is, but it's not quite at the low end, uh, we take a smaller weight. So that's more of a 5% weight versus 10% Ten percent weight is really our core, which says it's a top one hundred business. We followed it for more than a year, and it's at or below the low end of our valuation range. And so, I can't just magically make names discounted. I mean, I guess I could if I lower my discount rates or up my growth rates, but um, <laughs> that would not be um, that would not be doing this the right way. So,
0: it's funny you uh, mentioned Amazon. I have a question about that. So, one of the concepts you've highlighted in the past is finding companies whose growth is inside the moat meaning that they don't have to rely on growth in a vertical or area where they don't have a strong competitive position. But you've invested in Amazon, right? Which AWS was in a a, a tangential business, but not, you know, selling books. So I'm interested in how you square those two things about uh, focusing on businesses that kind of have one core strategy, one core product that they can grow versus, you know, trying to invest in companies that have the capacity to have a second act?
1: Well, first and foremost, I want to say Amazon prior to AWS would not have qualified for us because they didn't generate cash. Uh, They were this wonderful big business basis like, oh, we're going to be cash flow positive one day, but they had never proven that. And so we would have stayed away. And, uh, you know, AWS really was the thing that flipped the switch, made them a cash cow and ultimately something that we would look at or potentially invest in, Um, you know, and I, and I think this is a great question because the prototypical company we talk about to describe this concept of growth inside the moat is Visa or MasterCard, where they've grown for decades just by riding on the payment uh, you know, super cycle. And that should continue for another 30, 40 years as people shift away from cash to more electronic payments. Plus they get inflation, plus they have a little pricing. power. It's amazing businesses, right? But there are other companies that actually are a collection of multiple of those. So, I mean, you can think of like S and P Global, which may be my favorite business in the world. They have their their ratings business on the bond side, which you know, again, it's a government granted monopoly, but there's only two of them. Um, you know, S and P and Moody's. You've got Fitch kind of way off in third place, but they've got this incredible ratings business where again, they also get inflation, they also get a little bit of pricing power, and as the complexity of of you know bonds gets higher and higher, some of these other credit products. You know they get to charge more. Um, it's just such a great little business, but they also have an indices business. They also have Platts, which is the pricing of global commodities. So if you're trying to land a plane in Japan, you access Platts to know what the cost of the jet fuel should be, and it's a trusted third party. Wonderful business. They bought IHS Market, which is one of the you know testing and inspection certification companies. Also a top one. I mean, just to some incredible collection. And so it doesn't have to be one product that it, where the growth is inside the moat, but or any business line that we're really going to ascribe value to, we want to see that that growth is inside the moat, right? I mean, it's the same thing with Microsoft. They have Office and LinkedIn and Windows and their ERP and CRM stuff. They've got SQL Server. They've even got their, their gaming uh, platform, which is now so much better with, with Blizzard and Activision. And so these are tremendous companies where we would value each one of those segments as having the same type of um, you know, growth inside the moat that we're really looking for. I think The big question is just when a company is looking for new growth and it starts something new where it isn't at that level yet. So, you know, you mentioned AWS and let's go back to Amazon. Let's assume that at the beginning, the core business had qualified. We probably would not have ascribed a lot of value to uh, AWS. I mean, another company in our portfolio is Teradyne, where they- they produce, you know, the testing equipment that goes at the end of the fabrication of chips. So they can do wafer testing, but they can also do like the complete, you know, once the packaging is done, you can check to make sure that these chips are functioning the way they're supposed to once they've been fully manufactured. And that's a phenomenal business. Well, they've also got this other business, um, <laughs> you know, uh, they, well, I'm not, I'm not going to go into it right now, but they have another business that's totally unrelated that at this point, does not have those competitive advantages. And so while that business is there, it's part of the value. We don't ascribe the same level of, of growth to it. We don't ascribe the same level of value to it that we would the testing business, which is kind of kind of the core. Um, so, in, you know, Amazon is amazing. Obviously the retail business today is is pretty good, not because the retail business is solid, but in, in addition to AWS, they're now really this, this third party firm where it's third party seller services, right? And you, you've got to advertise to drive people to your, you know, Uh, to your specific page at Amazon or your specific product that you're trying to sell. And they do fulfillment as a service. So just out of curiosity though, Ben, I mean, do you know out of all the units that Amazon sells, what percentage do you think are Amazon selling products that Amazon has? And what percentage do you think are third parties selling on Amazon?
0: Uh, let me say 30, 70 with 70 being a third party 3PL stuff.
1: It's actually the other way. So it's 40% of volume is Amazon product and 60% is third party sellers on the site. And every quarter, that uh, ratio keeps ticking up. So I don't know where it'll kind of finally cut off, but the third party sellers are taking more and more. And it's really incredible because Amazon, you know, people a couple of years ago, they talked about Amazon as retail and AWS. And recently in the last call it three, four years, maybe people are saying, okay, well, they're retail, AWS, and advertising because all these people are, you know, paying for advertising. But they've built an entirely new business, which people still aren't talking about the way they should, which is logistics and fulfillment as a service. So what people don't realize is this past quarter, Amazon actually delivered more packages, not letters, but packages than UPS and FedEx combined. Not bigger than one of them, combined. So Amazon's logistics business is on par with, if not bigger than either UPS or FedEx. And people don't realize that. And this third-party seller services thing is huge. It's really fulfillment as a service. So what I do is I find a product I want to sell. I figure out how I want to position myself in the market. And if I can get the manufacturer to send that product to Amazon, they do everything else. They will distribute it, logistics. They will take the returns. They will handle payment, all of it. And so it's really that they're just saying, hey, listen, we've built this incredible platform and now we can empower anybody to use it. And obviously we can charge for it on the advertising side, but also on the fulfillment side. And so, you know, again, wonderful business. We're ascribing value to parts of it and we're ascribing growth to parts of it, but uh, maybe not to others. So sorry, long-winded answer for a very simple Mm -hmm. question, but uh, I love talking about growth inside the moat and all of our businesses we believe really have that. And that's what sets them maybe not fully apart, but uh, it's a big part of our strategy.
0: And when I think about the technology that you're using and the fact that the machine is kind of out there looking for things, including changes in industries, and I think you would have have an advantage when it comes to both inflection points, or I guess inflection points, both positive and negative at companies. So I'm just trying to get a sense, like when, when the machine's out there looking for stuff and potentially could flag a positive or negative inflection point, what is the output of that, right? You say you get like, press releases and stuff like that. But what is something that was more macro than that? Like we've seen an inflection point in a business that that looks like really positive and could change the valuation trajectory, like looking at AWS 15 years ago. What is, what kind of notifications, what is it actually doing to give you a sense of what's happening?
1: Yeah. So it, it, I want to be very clear, that's still a capability we're building. It's not Got something it. that we're using on a day and day out Sure. But we have kind of the roadmap to get there and we believe sure. it's very possible. Um, but I also want to be clear that what the machine is going to be very good at is identifying patterns of things that have happened before. Mm-hmm. So if you're talking about a cyclical industry and it looks like, okay, all of the cyclical indicators are pointing a certain way, I think that's going to happen. Um, but what we're really hopeful for is not that the machine is going to tell us, hey, there's something new, there's a disruption coming, you need to be prepared. What it's going to do is flag that disruption is happening in other smaller, weaker companies in an industry. Because again, we focus on the highest quality businesses. Disruption tends to impact the weaker players first, as opposed to the stronger ones, just because they feel sure. it. And those are not companies that we're necessarily covering on a day in, day out basis. And while we might not you know, expect the machine to be able to tell us, hey, this is what's happening and here's where it's going to go it can tell us, hey, there's something new that I haven't seen before and I'm seeing it more than once or I'm seeing it multiple times. You need to look at it. And so, you know, again, if we can just get ahead of something by a few weeks as long-term investors, and that happens once every two, three years, it could potentially create a lot of excess return or alpha in the portfolio. And so that's the hope there. Um, but again, it's it still has to be proved out.
0: And since I've have an affinity for smid cap myself having managed money in that space uh, i'm clearly a fan of that strategy what um what was so interesting to you i mean you said that like there vulcan had that history of small and smid but why why launch with that versus um you know why was that an, it, why, why was that core to the m- maybe the strategies that you launched with as, as opposed to you know maybe like just all cap or just large cap
1: Well, I think, I mean, one is what I already mentioned, which is, I think there was a level of demand and interest for spent cap. And so there's two parts to this. I mean, one, you want to be the best investor you possibly can, but it is also a business and we we have to deliver something to the world that the world wants. I'm a big fan of Peter Drucker and he says, Hey, profits are the indication of, are you adding value to your fellow man? It's not just, Oh, you're making money. It's like, if if you're not generating a profit, then maybe what you're doing isn't that valuable. And so um, we we do aim to hopefully generate a profit so that we're adding value to the world. People want Smith Two, to uh, I really believe that the best way to win at something is to kind of have an unfair advantage. You know, I, I, the, the question we often ask is, well, how do you, how do you beat LeBron James? And the answer is you don't play him at basketball, right? You want, you want to do something different and kind of keeping the basketball analogy going, you know, Smith caps in a way are micro caps, especially if you do that, is if you could take an NBA player and you put them in a high school junior varsity game, they're going to do incredibly well. And the nice thing about the investing world, it's about financial return. And no one really cares where you compete. What they care about is the return that you're earning on capital. And so if there are inefficient places in the market where you can take world-class skills and apply them against less or weaker competition, I mean, that's a phenomenal place to play. And so I think a small cap strategy the reason why great small cap managers tend to fill up really quick and then they're closed and then they don't open is because you can create alpha in that space. And so I think um, cap is wonderful for that. And then three, um, as I, I think I mentioned, but when the AI is out there looking for truly great businesses we've never heard of before, that's more likely in the SMIDCAP space, right? If there's some other Amazon out there that our team has never evaluated or never heard of, I mean, shame on us. Like we should be aware of most of the really true mega cap high quality businesses. And so in the large cap space, while I would expect there to be a few that trickle in specifically from other geographies or perhaps companies that we had a bias against, um, I think it's gonna be most beneficial in this mid cap space. And that's what we've seen thus far. It's where it's most exciting to kind of talk with allocators about um, you know, the things it's uncovering, et cetera. So that's, that's really kind of the three big impetuses, which is one, it's the business opportunity Two, we think it's more efficient. And then three, we believe our AI systems can add the most value in SMIC cap. And so all cap, same thing, but large cap, while it does add value, it's not as much uh, as in that, that smaller space.
0: And if you built a database of the hundred best companies, I mean, logically you could re- invert that. And you know, reverse the, the the to the reverse button and find a list of hundred worst companies or a hundred companies that are being disrupted or hundred companies that are in negative inflection points. Is I don't know if this is on the roadmap at all, but could the AI be used to be a good short as well? Um, tell yeah. me a little bit about how you have thought about that.
1: Hundred percent. So we've tested it. Um, you know, at our prior firm, we've tested it here, and the answer is one hundred percent yes. It really can do that. Now, I think it's harder to do a back test on shorts because it's really hard to model your actual costs of shorting positions. Um, there's a lot of flexibility there, but we think it's incredibly powerful because the nice thing about AI is it can run ultra diversified portfolios. It can run them at very low cost, it, et cetera. So I think Without question, if we are successful and we kind of get to where we need to be at one point, we will offer a long, short offering on our products where the longs that we have will be the longs. And then we'll have kind of an AI um, an AI led human reviewed short book, um, which again, it's going to be a much broader book than we'd be able to manage on our own doing that. And so uh, very much it's in the roadmap just because it's something that a lot of people ask about and it would be, it'd be very possible. We don't think, I want to be clear, we don't think the AI technology is ready just yet. I'm not sure if it's for three months out or three years out, but the hard part would be you've, you've still got to have human review because of hallucinations. So no matter what we do once in a while, we'll have a name comes through that just shouldn't be there. Like there's no data at all. And for some reason, the machine puts it through. And so we've got to go back and figure out what the problem was and readjust for that. And, you know, anyone who's used Chad GPT or whatever understands that once in a while you just get something really weird in the result. And so, um, you know, once that gets to a low enough amount, then I think maybe you could do this, but it's it's not ready. And so there's a lot of people out there like, we got AI fund and we're running it. And I'm like, man, we've been doing this for 10 years. I can tell you the technology today, it is not ready to do it without oversight. So if you're doing it in partnership, which we think is the best thing to do for the next 10, 15 years, that's great. But if you're just setting it and forgetting it, Um, you know, watch out. This is not high frequency trading where you're getting instant feedback and can refine those models. This is, you could have a problem and you don't know you have a problem for three to five years. And so, uh, yeah, we're, we're a little hesitant to launch that just yet, but it's, it's something we're investigating. It's definitely on the roadmap.
0: Talked about technology a lot. I want to make sure we address culture and people in this podcast, because this, this is an investment firm and it's very people driven. So you tell this amazing story of how you connected with uh, Paul Black of WCM, a firm that has raised billions of dollars in assets in recent years. And now Paul's on your board. What does he bring to the table? And what have you learned from Paul about his experiences at WCM?
1: Um, oh, well, I mean, Paul's amazing. And I'm so thankful for him. I'm so thankful for our whole board. Um, you know, what I would say is, a lot of people look at the success that WCM has had and what they don't realize is the history of that firm. So that company has been around for you know decades. Uh, I met Paul back in the early nineties as a teenager, uh, which I think I, I shared in, in the story you're referencing, but you know, WCM from that point, when I met them, uh, had kind of a first successful run where I think they got to one to 2 billion in AUM. I could be off. They, they may have been a little higher than that, but then they hit a real rough patch where they collapsed from that point to, you know, I think it was in the four to $600 million range. It might've been lower. I, again, I didn't look at their numbers prior to this, so I, I don't know the actual ones, but, you know, they were having hard conversations about, do we need to shut funds down? Do we need to let people go? And they, they had to go through this terribly difficult refining process before they kind of found what their secret sauce was, which was really both, you know, one, identifying great cultures and two, their perfect niche was kind of international growth. And when they found that, they've kind of grown into the WCM that we know and love and respect today. But um, the wonderful thing about talking with Paul, the thing he's helped me with is realizing, one, it's not the good times that produce the world-class culture. The thing that you want to be a part of, it's the hard times. And it's the way you respond to that. I mean, he tells stories about how in the first three years when he was there, he just drove up and down the coast of California meeting with every RIA he could possibly find trying to get that first $100 million in the door. And you know, it was a three-year process for him to get that first allocation, which what a level of commitment. But then to go through that, build a business and have it almost fail, and then you're able to, to, to run it back and kind of build it again. That's truly incredible. And so- He's helped us. You know, we we have had a little bit of turnover. We're a startup um, this year and some difficult things. But he's been really helpful to say, hey, listen, let's stay focused on the vision and let's stay focused on the long term. You're not building something for next quarter. You're not building something for next year. You're building something for the next two to three decades. This is a 20 or 30 year cycle. And while you're feeling that volatility right now, Mm -hmm. if we stay focused on the long run and you zoom back out, you realize that the, the near term volatility it's going to be inconsequential. It just doesn't matter. What matters is where you're going in the long run. And so that's been really helpful for the team, really helpful for me, and just so thankful for that perspective. And you know, I want to be clear, it's 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 Paul. We also had some great conversations with Mike Trigg. And so I just want to, want to call him out as well and, and really thankful for their input and support.
0: And I know you have like five pillars or main values that you want to try to instill into your team. We don't have time to go through all of them in depth, but maybe you can mention them. And then talk about which one you think is the hardest to get right.
1: <laughs> that's easy. So, uh, you know, our five values, the, the ones we talk about, we've got build trust, which I think is very kind of self-explanatory. We want to do what we say. we want to say what we do. Um, we want to pursue joy, uh, which, you know, means we want to do something that's more than just a job, but it's it, it, we spend so much time here, we want to be happy as well. We want to act courageously, both in executing our investment process, but also the way that we live our lives kind of in general. Um, we want to be you know we say great isn't good enough, so it's this idea of continuous improvement, which I think most of your listeners and anyone in this field they are probably very big into continuous improvement. How do we get better tomorrow than we are today? And then uh, finally, it's it's live generously. So how do we give back? And you know one of the things our firm does, we, we say that 10% of our profits are going to be uh, contributed to charity. And so that was kind of a, a big lift with our initial investors on the LLC side, but they um, they finally agreed. and so we're going to give 10% of our profits kind of forever to charity, which is huge. and then we really try to give back to individuals, et cetera but the hardest thing for us really is the, is the pursue joy one, which you think wouldn't be that tough, but you really get these, these radical extremes, uh, amongst high performers. You've got some people who in college, let's say just to describe it as a college student, you've got those people that, you know, they're really into Greek life. And so while they're very intelligent, maybe their grades weren't quite what they could have been. Cause they just, they loved living life to the full. And so you've got some people like that in the work Work world who are like, I'm gonna do a great job, but I also want to just be really, you know, excited and do all the fun stuff and they want to, you know, pursue joy all the time. And then you've got those other people who, you know, they were already making a 4.0, but they still want to go to the library and study for another five hours and they don't ever want to do anything fun because they're so worried about like, you know, always being perfect at, at all of it. And so in firms like ours, you get both extremes. And how do you manage those two extremes to say, hey, listen, as a culture, we want to pursue joy. And while we're going to work incredibly hard, we're going to be very good at what we do. We also want to make sure that we're balanced. This is a marathon. Again, 20, 30 years, not one, not two. And if we're burning ourselves out, working 80 to 100 hours focused with no joy and no release, like that's a problem. And so it's how do we build a great culture? Well, we have fun together. How do we, you know, make it through the hard times? Well, we've built uh, trust via doing things in common. That's more than just investing, and more than just executing. And so, really trying to get that balance right. Um, that's been a challenge, and I'm not going to say we've arrived, uh, but we're on the journey, and and hopefully we have something very valuable in a few years we can share with others.
0: Well, I'm not going to ask you about what you expect the firm to look like in 20 years, because that seems like outside of the uh, you know for pre- you know any kind of clear vision in terms of predictability, but. I'm I do care and I you know I, I'm always very interested in what success would look like and, and does look like for people. So if we're having this conversation in 7 years, what would success look like to you?
1: Well, I think the two easy ones to cross off are one we're still here having this conversation in 7 years. Um, I think investment firms the the, the failure rates pretty high. Uh, we think we have something that's different. Um, you know, the, the world does not need another asset manager. There's there's too many of them. There's more asset managers than there are stocks. So we're trying to add something of value above and beyond that. And we think we're doing that from the AI side. We think we're doing that from our values. We think we're doing that from how we recruit people and ultimately want to do something with them. Um, so one, we're here. Two, we've really amplified the impact of our client partners. So I think as an investment management firm, you're judged on your investment performance. And on a net basis after fees, we're hopeful that we've created more value than the index. And if we haven't, uh, uh, seven years from now, then we probably shouldn't exist. We should probably go do something else with our lives because we're not creating value. And then finally, and I think most importantly for us, the way I would define success is, as I've mentioned, we want to bring great people in world-class, train them up, apprentice them. And then ultimately if they have a vision to go do something, we want to get behind them and, and help them do that. And so, what that would probably look like for us is having our first breakaway, or our first spin out, or our first tiger cub, or however, however you want to call it. Like, seven years may be a little tight. I'm not sure we're going to be able to do it in that that period of time. But if we have someone truly great, world class, come in and they're ready, and we're we've been successful enough, I'd love to at least say we're in the process of contemplating what that might look like. And again, we think that's the way we're going to get the best and the brightest for the longest is if we take someone, they're amazing and we spin them out and they have success. I think anyone else in the industry who they're really great, they're going to look at us as an ideal landing place somewhere they want to be because that's the journey they want to take. And we're acknowledging that that's reality and that we want to support that as opposed to say, Hey, no, you, you know, leaving is, is wrong and leaving is is something negative. So
0: so we want to close because we've talked about a lot of things i want to close with a couple questions about the investment opportunity that you guys are pursuing and so we have a list of 100 best stocks and 100 best companies in the world that you follow maybe given your history of vulcan and what you've seen at the first few years at saguaro what is the reason why one of these incredible companies would trade you know, kind of at the lower end or below the lower end of your sense of intrinsic value. Like what has to happen for something to be actionable for you? And what are the, you know, kind of the external causes that get you there?
1: I mean, it's so idiosyncratic uh, for each business. So for something to get to the low end of the valuation range, one, it could be the market in general. And I would make the argument that as passive becomes a larger and larger part of kind of the total allocations out there um you're going to see more volatility and i think you know i think that's that's been exhibited but the truth is like you don't have the counterparties out there if vanguard or blackrock or somebody else gets major redemptions there is no counterparty that can take you know, even 50 basis points of Vanguard redeeming in their largest S&P 500 type funds. And that would be, I mean, I think we're setting ourselves up next time there's kind of a major drawdown. I think it's going to be worse than anybody's anticipating in the short run, just because the liquidity isn't there. You do not have a counterparty uh, to be able to take that level of AUM. So, uh, I mean, that could happen. I'm sorry. That's that's probably not what you're asking about, but it could happen. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the the other reasons are totally idiosyncratic. So the reasons why Meta got discounted last year are totally different from the reasons why we think Dollar General is discounted right now, right? Like, I mean, Meta last year, people like, okay, you know, people, advertisers are fleeing. Zuckerberg is spending too much money on the metaverse, not focused on the the core business and the regulatory risk is so high. And we looked at it, we're like, well, the users are using Facebook more than ever and they're spending more time. There's more eyeballs. And we think the advertising thing was just kind of overblown COVID and now it's it's kind of settling back in the normal curve, and so we bought it, and lo and and behold, it it went crazy, which was was great. You know, Dollar General today, it's oh, everyone's terrified of Timu, and they've had some bad press. I mean, I think they were on John Oliver tonight, like two weeks ago, Um, and then you know, it's just their target market has really been squeezed as the cost of energy and the cost of housing has gone up. Maybe that's going to come back the other way. That would be great. Um, but it's very idiosyncratic at different times. And you know, you never know why any one particular company is going to get discounted. We can't predict it. That's why we want to have a list of 100 so that there are opportunities. And again, you've got to look at it because one of them, the stock price may go way down and there may be a good reason for it. And so it's distinguishing between this is something that we truly believe is temporary. It's cyclical. It's not a secular change where it's going to be permanent and there's destruction of value. And I think that's that's the hard part where hopefully we get it right more often than we get it wrong. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I mean, I, again, I could go through every single one of our companies and talk about why we thought it was discounted when we bought it. Um, but I, I can't give you like a general, these are the, these are the reasons in general, cause it's, it's very specific to each company.
0: And we'll close this podcast with the questions we're asking all of our manager guests. What do you think is the most underappreciated aspect of the investment opportunity set you're pursuing at sora
1: I mean, I think this is such a, such a tough question. So I think you know we're, we're really investing in three things. We're investing in technology, which again, we don't believe people understand fully kind of the exponential curve there. We're really trying to invest in people in a different way by making ourselves conform to reality of great people want to go on and do great things versus we're just going to build our firm and they can be part of the journey if they want to. And then third, obviously, is on the, the investment side, which is again, for whatever reason, it just doesn't seem to matter. But I don't think people understand long-term compounders, which is the whole point, I think, of your your show. But it's, if you find a truly great business and you get it at a wonderful price, you can benefit from that idea for 10, 20, 30 years. So doing the work to find one of these, the long-term benefit that it can provide to your portfolio, to your life, I don't think is, is fully understood. I mean, I started as a special situations guy. And the problem that I realized was I'd have these great ideas, they would play out, but then I had to go find another one. And it's like so much work, so much effort. And I get maybe, you know, if I got a hundred percent gain, Ooh, you know, that's like a huge cheering thing. It's awesome. But it, it it's then you got to rinse and repeat. And that's a really hard thing to do. Whereas if you can slowly, but surely over time, build these, you know, great lists of compounders. I mean, that's, that's what, what Buffett has done. And, you know, Charlie Munger, who we need to talk about because he just he just passed on. I mean, his big contribution is like, look, if you you examine the Buffett track record or the Berkshire Hathaway track record, most of it was made up on a few great decisions that were made one time and those things have just compounded over time. I mean, and frankly, I mean, just look at the the most recent one Buffett did with Apple, where He's generated more actual dollar figure return for all of his shareholders from that one decision than everything he's done previously, which again, power of compounding, all the capital he has, et cetera. But he's going to benefit. He's going to hold Apple probably for next 20, 30 years, and he should benefit for a very long period of time, just like he has with Coca-Cola, just like he has with American Express, just like he has with so many different companies. And so, um, yeah, we think there's a lot of power in it. It's underappreciated. If you're looking for a place to, to allocate right now, I would say, well... You, know, you got you to ask the question about consumer discretionary and um, housing and how long um, people are going to go without moving. And is it something where, you know, if interest rates keep going up or they stay where they are, are people just going to stay in their homes forever? Or is there a certain period where that that eventually rolls off? So that's probably a longer term play than most people are comfortable with. But I'll just, I'll just put that out there. I think there's some real opportunities in that space.
0: Well, this is incredible. Thank you, uh, Jim, for talking about giving us a masterclass on how to think about AI. How it's actually used within your process. Um, and then, you know, layering in the depth of research you do on your own companies. I mean, it's just the, the quantitative plus the qualitative plus the technology is just an, it's a really interesting mix. So um I'm excited to see where Sora is in, in seven years and we'll be following your journey. Thanks for being on compounders.
1: Ben, thank you so much for the time. And again, um always happy to, to discuss with people out there, either on the allocator side, other investment managers. We very much believe in partnerships, conversations. We believe re- relationships can compound as well. So we're always looking to build them. Never know where they can go. Uh, but we think together, humanity can do better things than they can uh, on their own. So look into looking to build for the future.
0: Amen to that. Thank you. Jim mentioned a number of securities on this podcast. The only company I own is Berkshire Hathaway.